There is nothing wrong with your MP3 player. Do not attempt to adjust the podcast. We are controlling transmission. If we wish to make it louder, we will bring up the volume. If we wish to make it softer, we will tune it to a whisper. We can reduce the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. We will control the astronomical. We will control the comprehensible. For the next hour, sit quietly, and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to experience the awe and mystery that reaches from the inner mind to... The Jodcast. Quality Astronomy from the University of Manchester. With Megan Argo, Ian Morrison, Tim O'Brien, David Alt, Stuart Lowe and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast. July issue. Hello and welcome to the July edition of the Jodcast. On this month's show we have an interview with Andrew Greenwood, chairman of the Macclesfield Astronomical Society. We have an interview with Ian Morrison about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence or SETI. And of course we have Ask an Astronomer and the Night Sky as per usual. But first, before any of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, the GEO 600 gravitational wave detector begins full-time observations. Names decided for the two recently discovered moons of Pluto. And Hubble's advanced camera for surveys recovers from a power problem. A joint German and UK experiment designed to detect gravitational waves began continuous observations in June. The GEO 600 detector will work alongside the American project known as the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO, in an attempt to detect the incredibly weak signals caused by gravitational waves passing through the Earth. These waves can be thought of as ripples in the fabric of space-time itself. Any moving object generates gravitational waves, which travel outwards at the speed of light, as predicted by Einstein's theory of general relativity. Usually, however, these waves are so tiny that they are practically undetectable. Even the highly sensitive detectors in these experiments will only be sensitive to gravitational waves generated by catastrophic events such as supernovae explosions or mergers of black holes. These experiments use a technique known as interferometry. A laser beam is split and sent down two long tunnels at right angles to each other. Mirrors reflect the beams back down the tunnels, where the laser light is combined, producing an interference pattern. If a gravitational wave passes through the Earth, the ripple in space-time will cause the ground to shrink slightly in one direction, while it expands slightly in another. This will cause the tunnels to change in length by tiny amounts, so altering the interference pattern. The changes in length are tiny, smaller even than the diameter of a proton, one of the fundamental particles which make up atoms. The two new satellites of Pluto, discovered by astronomers using the Hubble Space Telescope last year, have been officially named Nix and Hydra by the International Astronomical Union this month. The satellites, each about 5,000 times fainter than Pluto itself, orbits more than twice as far from the planet as Charon, Pluto's other moon discovered in 1978. The names chosen by the IAU 
continue the mythology link. In Greek mythology, Charon was the boatman who ferried the souls of the dead into Hades across the river Archeron. Nyx was the goddess of darkness and night, appropriate given the distance of Pluto from the sun, and also the mother of Charon. Hydra, meanwhile, was a nine-headed serpent monster who guarded the entrance to the underworld. These moons make Pluto the first object in the Kuiper Belt, a ring of small, rocky, icy bodies orbiting the sun beyond Neptune, known to have more than one satellite. The Hubble Space Telescope's Advanced Camera for Surveys, or ACS, began malfunctioning on June the 19th. The first indication that anything was wrong came when readings of voltages within the camera's power supply unit were outside normal acceptable values, causing the camera to cease operations. The instrument was taken offline so that engineers at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center could investigate the problem and come up with a solution. The camera, which operates from the ultraviolet part of the spectrum through visible and infrared light, was installed by astronauts on board the shuttle during the last servicing mission to the telescope in 2002, and has produced huge amounts of scientific data, which has been analysed by astronomers from all over the world. On the 30th of June, engineers successfully reactivated the camera from the ground. Tests showed that the camera was functioning as expected and normal operation was resumed on the 2nd of July. The planned launch of the Space Shuttle Discovery was scrubbed on both the first and second attempts at the weekend. Both the original scheduled launch at 1949 Greenwich Mean Time on July the 1st and the second 24 hours later were scrubbed due to large anvil-shaped clouds within 20 miles of the launch pad. The next attempt will be at 1838 Greenwich Mean Time on July the 4th. This flight will be the 18th to the International Space Station and the 32nd flight for the shuttle Discovery. Passing Earth at a distance of more than 430,000 kilometres, asteroid 2004 XP-14 will be much closer than any of the fragments of comet swashman rockman 3 which caused excitement in May of this year. At its closest approach, 2004 XP-14, a member of the Apollo or Earth-crossing group of asteroids, was still further away than the Moon. However, with a size of approximately half a kilometre, the asteroid will only be visible to observers with moderately large telescopes. Astronomers will be using the Evpatoria antenna in the Ukraine and Goldstone in America to make radar measurements by bouncing radio waves off the rock and listening for the echoes in order to more accurately measure the distance and velocity of the asteroid during its close approach. Using these measurements, the mass and density of the asteroid can also be calculated providing clues about the composition, structure and origin of 2004 XP-14. On a smaller scale, reports early in June that a large meteor exploded over Norway with an energy similar to that of an atomic bomb appear to have been exaggerated. According to Professor Kari Axnes from the Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics at the University of Oslo, a sizable meteor did explode in the atmosphere over northern Troms. He estimates that the rock was three metres in radius and was almost completely vaporised due to friction with the atmosphere before it hit the ground. Events such as this are fairly common but often occur over water or in uninhabited areas and so are not seen by observers on the ground. Thanks for that, Megan. Now, Nick's interviewee this month 
is one of the regular voices that you hear on the Jodcast. It's Ian Morrison, who's been involved for a long time with the work of the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or SETI. Nick caught up with him to find out what it's all about. With me this month is Dr. Ian Morrison, here at Jodrell Bank Observatory, and we're going to be talking about SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Ian, thank you very much for giving us a chat about this today. What can you tell us? A pleasure. Well, let's start from the beginning. The subject arose way back in 1959 when two American astronomers suggested that given two giant radio telescopes, like the Mark I radio telescope that had just been built here at Jodrell Bank and 250 feet across, it would be possible to communicate across interstellar distances. If there were other intelligent civilizations out there, Perhaps we could intercept any conversations they might be having between themselves, or maybe they might be trying to directly contact us. They suggested some possible stars one might look at. They're stars essentially like our sun, that live long enough and are hot enough to allow an advanced civilization to evolve on a planet around them. They also suggested where to look in terms of frequency. The radio band has a natural region where the background noise is a minima. It's roughly between the frequencies used for mobile phones and satellite television. Within that, there are some frequencies relating to specific atoms. Any other advanced civilization would know those frequencies. Two of them, one related to hydrogen, another to the radical OH, map up a band that we call the waterhole, because H and OH make up water. So this is where perhaps one might try and look. Well, the very next year, the first search was made at Green Bank in America by Frank Drake. They looked at Tau Ceti and Epsilon Eridani, two nearby sun-like stars, for two months or so, for part of each day. They did pick up some very odd signals but later they realized and found out that they were the result of clandestine transmissions from the U-2 spy plane, which was then top secret. Ohio State University used quite a large telescope from about 1973, and in 1977 it picked up a signal that had all the right attributes as coming from somebody out there. But no matter how many times we've looked in that same position in space, no further signals have ever been detected. What, what were these attributes of, of the signal? Well, firstly, it was a very narrow band signal. Most natural phenomena give rise to signals that are so-called broadband. They cover a whole range of frequencies. Intelligent signals tend to use very specific frequencies. Like, for example, you have to tune across the radio, your radio set to pick up particular channels. Also... If it was a signal, which was actually coming from a long way away, the level of that signal would go up and down as that particular direction passed through the beam of the radio telescope. And it did this precisely as one would expect. Anything on the ground, or even nearby the Earth, wouldn't have done the same thing. So it was an interesting signal. It's called the wow signal. The wow signal. Because when it was seen by the observer next morning, he wrote wow <laughs> in the uh, column beside it on the chart printout. More recently, we've had two major SETI programs in operation. 
both using the world's largest radio telescope at Arecibo in Puerto Rico. Because it's the largest radio telescope in the world, uh, something like um, a thousand feet across, then in fact it's the most sensitive of any radio telescope, so could pick up signals from greater distances. In conjunction with our Lovell radio telescope here at Jodrell Bank in what was called Project Phoenix, we looked at about 800 sunlight stars out to a distance of about 200 light years. But sadly, no signals were picked up, of course, otherwise you'd know about it. As well as that, it is still in use in a project which most people know of as SETI at Home, where the data being collected by the Arecibo dish is being analysed in people's home computers. They've had a few false alarms, but sadly none have actually checked out when they've been looked at in great detail. So we just have to wait and hope. 2006 is actually quite a good year to consider SETI, because there are three new initiatives sort of coming into action this year. The first one is in fact not related to radio at all. It was always thought you could never detect a signal by visible light because it would be totally overwhelmed by the light from the adjacent star. But when Charles Townes invented the laser, he realised that you could make very short pulses which for a short time could easily outshine a star. And with the sort of lasers that are now being developed for nuclear fusion in particular, allied to a 10-metre dish, we know a star many hundreds of light years away could produce a short-term signal that could easily outshine, perhaps by a factor of 100,000 times, the brightness of the star about which that planet's orbiting. So in the last few years, optical SETI has come into being. There have been some targeted searches looking at specific stars. So far, no luck. But only a few weeks ago, a new nearly two-metre telescope has been inaugurated, which will be carrying out an all-sky survey looking for short pulses of laser emission. It can actually observe the whole sky in about 200 days and will just look over and over again to see if it detects any signal of great interest. Well, we just have to wait and see. Project Phoenix was being operated by the SETI Institute. They'd been actually running the NASA SETI program when the funding was cut in 1993, but they carried on using private funding. Again, with private funding, in fact, from Paul Allen, who's one of the founders of Microsoft, they are building their own dedicated SETI array in Northern California. It's called the Allen Telescope Array. It's going to be made up of 350 small dishes, each about seven by six meters in size. The overall area will be equivalent to a dish 120 meters across. That's pretty big. But the beauty of using many small dishes is it will be able to observe quite a wide area of sky. And whereas in Project Phoenix, we could look at one star at a time, in the long term, it'll be able to observe many stars at one time and hence make the search much more efficient. Also this year, the initial funding has been made towards the building of what's called the Square Kilometre Array. This will have a sensitivity two orders of magnitude greater than any current radio telescope. And it would mean that we'd have a chance of picking up signals not just from our backyard here, in our galaxy, 
for example, Project Phoenix looked out to about 200 light years, but our galaxy is 100,000 light years across. So when the square kilometer array, as it's called, comes online in around 2020, it too will have multiple beams, and some of these might be used to actually search out for intelligent signals. And that will probably give us the best chance we have, certainly in the radio, in the foreseeable future. Should we perhaps be discouraged by the fact that no signals have been detected so far? To be honest, I think not. We've only really been able to look with sufficient sensitivity at a very small part of our galaxy. 20 years ago, it used to be thought that intelligent life forms like us would be very common. There might have been a million, they thought, in the galaxy. If so, then you'd expect to find some quite close. So our current searches may well have had a reasonable chance to detect them. But now we suspect that intelligent life forms are much less common. We believe that simple life will be found all across the galaxy. It arose here on planet Earth virtually the instant the Earth could support life. There's no reason why that shouldn't happen elsewhere. But it then took a very long time for that simple life to develop into first multicellular life and then ourselves. You need a planet that retains a very steady temperature over a very long period of time, several thousand million years. Our Earth has some rather special features, not least a very large moon that's helped stabilize its rotation axis. It has something called plate tectonics, where the crust is recycled and carbon dioxide that's actually been formed into materials that drop onto the ocean floors, that can then be released again into the atmosphere through volcanic action. And that's helped keep the Earth warmer than it would otherwise be. It's likely that planets like the Earth are not very common. And hence, intelligent life is also not that common. The answer is we just don't know how common it is, but it does make the point that we probably need to be able to look at the whole of our galaxy to have a realistic chance of detecting any signals from ET. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Thank you very much, Ian. And we'll be hearing more from Ian Morrison a little bit later in the show. Now, staying close to Jodrell Bank, Megan is a member of the Macclesfield Astronomical Society. And to continue our series on amateur astronomers, she spoke to Andrew Greenwood, who is the chairman of Macclesfield Astronomical Society, to find out why he does what he does. I'm here with Andrew Greenwood, who is the chairman of Macclesfield Astronomical Society, the local astronomical society near to Jodrell Bank. Hello, Andrew. Hello, thanks for inviting me. So, what got you interested in astronomy in the first place? Well, it's a little story attached to this, really. Apparently when I was very young, one of my first words was moon. And I think what happened, my mum had me in her arms and we were waving someone out and, and apparently I pointed up into the sky and said, moon! <laughs> so that was my first, uh, I think that was probably where, where it all came from. Interested from a very early age. Then. Yes, absolutely. And, and probably when I got to about six or seven years of age, I was quite interested. I remember having lots and lots of books. I, I got bought a Tasco refractor. And probably a couple of years later, I, I lost interest and it came back in about 97. Right. Okay. So hopefully it will remain with me. So do you still have your first telescope? I don't, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I wish I had. And I have, I have one 
quite vivid memory of the telescope, or two actually. One was actually being outside in the garden in the dark, actually looking at the moon, which obviously looked great. It had you know, probably tons of chromatic aberration all around it, but it looked great <laughs> anyway. And the other one was, I remember looking at Starlink on a, right. on a rooftop quite a while away on, on another house and wondering why on earth Starling was upside down. <laughs> but there you go, that's, that, that's part of the, the history, I suppose. <laughs> right. So if you don't have that telescope, what kind of telescope do you use nowadays? Nowadays, I'm very fortunate I have three telescopes. That's quite a few. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite greedy in that respect. <laughs> I have an 8-inch F6 reflector, which I tend to use for general observing, planetary observing, you know, deep sky stuff. It's great for, for grasping the light. It must be quite unwieldy, though. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's about a metre and a quarter long, so it needs a decent mount. I have a, a Vixen DX mount, so it's, it's fine on that. But if you get a little bit of wind, then you, you do get slight jiggles and what have you. So that's the biggest instrument that I have. I have uh, an 80mm refractor, a William Optics 80mm refractor, which is a lovely instrument. It's crafted so nicely. And I use that mainly for grab-and-go astronomy and um, also for imaging. It's a great scope for imaging with. I do have a Coronado PST. That's the solar telescope. That's the solar telescope for safe solar observing in hydrogen alpha light. And that's great because you can do astronomy almost 24 hours a day. When the sun comes out, out comes the telescope. And it's, it's a super thing. Very small, dead portable. Very lightweight as well. Absolutely. But don't forget, obviously I have a pair of binoculars as well. 7x50s, naked eye, perfect. And I also have the other key item in, in that range of equipment is my camera for the refractor, which is a Nikon D50, it's an SLR which is great. I found that to be very easy to use, very nice to use. So a digital camera? It's a digital camera, yes. I, I, for astrophotography, I'd say probably a year and a half ago, I transferred to I turned my back on film. It was, a, it was a sad moment, and I moved over to digital. But resolution-wise, and for using cheap cameras, cheap manual SLRs, Film is still absolutely great. Mm. It just takes longer it's to catch you. Longer to, yeah. Absolutely. So uh, each to their own. Still, of the telescopes you have, which one probably gets the most use? Definitely the smallest. The smallest. The refractor. The refractor. Yeah, the small refractor, the eighty mm refractor, definitely is the one that I get. Uh, I mean, we, we don't have the skies, uh, the, the clear skies in the UK, so it's a, it's a well-known saying: your best telescope is the one they use most often, Definitely. and it is a refractor, yeah, without a doubt. should say that in the last two weeks here, I don't think we've had a single clear night. No, definitely um, not. It's been very it's, frustrating. It's been absolutely <laughs> awful. It, it seemed, whilst we're all at work during the week, it's been great, but of course it's getting darker later. You can't observe until later. But come the weekend, what does it do? Yes, it rains. It rains. <laughs> absolutely. So yes, I hope it's going to come to an end soon. Okay, so if um, somebody came to Macclesfield Astronomical Society meeting and said, I'm new to astronomy and I would like to start looking at the skies, what would you recommend that they did? Would you say binoculars or would you say just look with your eyes or would you suggest they went and borrowed somebody's telescope? I'd always say if you really must use an instrument to look at the sky, always start with binoculars. Even with the best telescope in the world, binoculars are still absolutely brilliant for certain things like sweeping the Milky Way or looking at the Pleiades or looking at the Beehive Cluster, whatever. Some views through binoculars are just never surpassed. So, yeah, naked eye and binoculars. But primarily, and it's an art that's being lost these days, is to learn the sky. 
All these I mean, telescopes with the go-to with computers go-to. in them. I mean, yeah. go, go-to is great because it makes you really productive. You can go from object to object. But there are two things that are kind of manifested from the go-to revolution, and that is people don't learn the sky, as we've just said, and people will just race around the sky looking at objects and not actually observing them. They, they may see a galaxy and it just looks like a smudge, and then they're off looking something else. If you take the time to observe objects, you start to see the detail. To train your eyes to train see Train your eyes. Detail. And it takes a while, it takes a long time. But yes, yeah, start with naked eye, start with binoculars, and a great star map or a planisphere. Learn the bright stars and go through the sky that way. And also, join a club like Maxfield Astronomical Society. Obviously, yes. Absolutely. Go to www.macastro.com if you want to learn about us. Um, and you know, we have a, a section of the website that talks about what's going on in the night sky during the current month. So, so go there. It's well, a good start. U- useful links on there as well. Absolutely, actually. yeah. So how big is Macclesfield Astronomical Society? I know it's been going for 16 years. 16 years. 15th of May 1990 it was born. I think it's a great society. I mean, I would say that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it really is. And I kind of formulated that view from the members. We have a great range of members, all very enthusiastic. They will interact with the lecturers, with the workshops that we do. I mean, there's nothing better than having an audience that will interact with you because then you're not just talking at them, they're, they're going through it with you. Our spiritual base is Jodrellbank, the great telescope here that I can see to my right. And uh, without a shadow of a doubt, it's a massive draw for uh, potential astronomers, amateur astronomers. Because it's just a, it's an incredible object that you see on the landscape, but to come here and to stand so close to it and just be in absolute awe of the structure and the science that goes on here... It's a super thing. I only wish that it was a centre of excellence for the public as well as science, because it's, it's the only place of its kind. It's only one of its kind in the UK. It's only one of the kind of in the world in terms of what it is. You know, it's history, what have you. It's just fantastic. So obviously the site, and also the, the, the things that we get up to in the society. Obviously we have a workshop, which is on the first Tuesday every month. We have a lecture on the third Tuesday of every month, and we've just started a beginner's class on the fourth Tuesday of every month. So that's um, complete back to basics, so how telescopes work. Absolutely. What is a star? What's the bright star I can see in the west? Is it a star, or is it a planet, is it Venus, what have you? But it's, yeah, right back down to basics on the fourth Tuesday of every month, and, so. and I expect that to be a success. So something for pretty much everyone. Yeah, and of course our trips as well. The skies here in Cheshire are notorious for being rather cloudy and rather grey and miserable. Yeah, so absolutely. how often do you actually get to observe? Uh, if I could put it down to, on a monthly basis, I'd probably say, on average, once every two months, Right. I'd say, to do a good observing session. I mean, if it's clear, I'll always be looking at the sky. I look at the sky during the daytime because I'm interested in phenomena as well. You, you're just looking all the way. You, know, you see people say you've got a head in the clouds. You know, it's quite apt, I suppose. Although I would rather have my head in a clear sky rather than a head, head in the clouds. Um, <laughs> yeah, astronomers tend to become sort of amateur meteorologists as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's something I wanted to do for a career, um, but never got there. So, yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very rare simply because it's pressures of work, you know, other things that are going on in my life... But if I get a great clear night on a, on a Friday or a Saturday night, or sometimes even a Sunday night, I'm out there, definitely. 
I just wish it could be more often. Mm. I wish we could be somewhere in the States or wherever where they can organise a star party six months in advance and be almost sure you'll get clear skies. Yeah. We can't do that. It doesn't happen here. No, <laughs> not at all. It's a real shame. So when you do go out and observe, what kind of objects do you tend to spend the most time looking at? Is there a particular kind of object that you're interested in or do you just generally sweep the sky? And... Well, I'd, say, I'd like to say I like everything, but I, I'd say the things that I observe the most, probably the planets. I do enjoy observing the planets because there's always change, especially on Jupiter or Mars. And of course, Venus shows its phases, uh, Saturn, its beautiful ring system. Yeah, I'd say probably I observe the planets more than anything, but I like everything. And it depends what's in the sky during the time, during the month. I mean, in the winter, obviously, there's, there's the great Orion Nebula, there's the Pleiades, there's all the wonderful stuff around Orion, there's some great double stars. So I, I probably spend my time looking at the stars rather than the planets. During the summer months, even though it doesn't get dark, I love to sweep the Milky Way. I love the summer sky. It, it's, I think I prefer the summer sky to the winter sky somehow, even though it doesn't get dark. Just going through Cygnus, the constellation of Cygnus, absolutely wonderful. So many uh, star clusters. Oh, there? yeah. yeah. Dark just, nebulae as well. Yeah, yeah, to see, see almost clouds of stars and down into Scutum, and it's even denser in the wild duck cluster. It's one of my favourite objects. So the thing that I don't observe a lot of, well, there are two things. One is galaxies. Although I'm fascinated by galaxies, I don't observe a lot of galaxies. I need to get myself into that. Uh, I, I saw once, I think, NGC 891, which is the edge on with the incredible dust lane, pin-sharp yeah. dust lane running through Andromeda. It's a very exciting galaxy, that one. There's a lot of star formation going on. Right, on absolutely incredible. And I just remember, this is from the back garden in carriage, looking through my telescope and seeing this thing, but it wasn't there all the time. It was kind of a switching itself on and off. It was, it was just on the edge of my vision. Just faint enough that it It was just faint enough, yeah. And I just remember it just appearing, then disappearing, then appearing. And it was so tantalising. Just a voyage of discovery, it's great. Uh, the other thing that I observe the least, and I'm, I'm ashamed to say, the moon. Much neglected object by absolutely. a lot of astronomers. Yeah, it? absolutely. Yeah. I, I am always very jealous of people that can say, oh, that's... Um, that's, that's Copernicus. This, yeah, Copernicus, Tycho. I mean, I know the, the, the basic ones, but there's so much other, other different objects and features on the moon, which, sadly... I don't know a lot about it. Yeah, there's such a lot there to see, but most people just complain when it's in the sky because yeah. it means you can't see things like NGC 891. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's unfortunately regarded as natural light pollution. <laughs> but, you know, it's not. It's not. It's a true and a wonderful object. You should, should look at it more. So if you want to go off and observe something really exciting or unusual, do you ever go anywhere else? We have an observing site in Langley, which is outside Macclesfield, it's a cricket ground, a Langley Cricket Club. They very, very kindly allow us to go down there. The sky is just that little bit darker because you're shielded by some of the, the hills around you. So that's one place that we, we tend to get together, like the hardcore observing from the society. group from the society. Yeah, we, we converge and we get our telescopes and observe the skies. So that's one stage. And then the next stage is we travel probably about 100 miles to a place in Yorkshire called Hardraw. And the skies there are absolutely beautiful. It's inside the National Park. It is, and it's just, it's stunning. You can walk out there and you can, within 30 seconds you can see the Milky Way and you can see it brightly. We've had times when we've had some very high cloud come across 
the sky and you can still see this very faint cloud glow behind it and you know it's still, still Milky Way. It's still through. Wow. Very, very faint cloud, a wispy cloud. Uh, so that's a great, great place we go to observe. And we, we're going this year six times, which is a great indulgence for us. It's, it's a time where we can spend a weekend just indulging in pure astronomy and nothing else. No other distractions. It's absolutely wonderful. Further afield, eclipses. I've been very, very fortunate in that I've seen three total eclipses. I've seen one in Turkey in 1999. That was the one that was visible from the UK, but unfortunately... It was raining in Cornwall. Yes, yes it wasn't was really there. visible. <laughs> <laughs> so we saw 1999. That was wonderful. That was my first eclipse. I travelled to Zimbabwe in 2001. Wow. 11,000 miles of travel for that. That's a long, long way. Yeah. How many um, minutes of totality? That was... I think it was two minutes, ten seconds. Right. Or maybe just over in South Africa, in Zimbabwe, rather. It was about two minutes, 36 in Turkey. And then this year, uh, this year was the big one. I travelled to, to with, with about 700 other people. I travelled to Libya uh, to see a total eclipse from the Saharan Desert. And that was about four minutes, seven seconds, something like that. And it's quite a long one. It's a very long one. <laughs> it, it's... It was over in a flash, though, taking pictures, just absorbing it, the sheer excitement. It was over so quickly. And when you, when you watch a video, just video footage, it goes on and on and on. You think it's never going to end. <laughs> but it was just the most incredible eclipse. It was the best eclipse I've ever seen. Everything was heightened twofold over everything else that I saw, uh, all, all the other eclipses, rather. And I think it's because of the environment, being in the desert probably the clarity of the sky. It wasn't a cloud in the sky. There's a bit of dust around from people driving cars around just before totality. But anyway, we won't talk about you that. You might expect that. In yeah, the absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the landscape was very alien. There was no reference point because it was just completely flat. It was just horizon to horizon. And it made everything just so incredibly saturated, the colours. It was just its very hard to describe. No picture can kind of portray it. You've got to be there to see it. The next eclipse, I believe, is August 2008. And there are moves afoot to take a trip to uh, either Spitsbergen in Norway or to the Gobi Desert, wow. which would be quite incredible, quite an extreme environment. But I think it's only a minute and a bit, that eclipse, that total eclipse. So it's not very long. The big one is the one that we're all really, really waiting for is in 2009, July 2009. And where does the path of that one cross? Well, the path, I believe, it goes into the Pacific, but I think it starts around India. I think it's around that region. Sweeps across towards Japan, comes off the coast of Japan, and there's a small island in the Pacific, and you can get six minutes, 45 seconds of totality. That's a very long eclipse. That's a very, very long eclipse. <laughs> I think the maximum you can get is seven minutes something, maybe seven minutes, ten or twenty. So you're right up there with the longest duration eclipse you can it's get. It's got to be quite a rare event. Very, very much so. It's the longest eclipse this century. So if you can get there. Go there. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, I'm going, so follow <laughs> <Thank> me. <you. laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it'd be great. Okay, so we mentioned the, the orange glow in the skies um, above Macclesfield. Light pollution is obviously quite a big problem and is becoming increasingly so. Yeah. What kind of input do amateur astronomers have in the fight against light pollution? There has been 
I wouldn't say it, call, call it landmark legislation, but in April, I believe, some legislation was passed against light pollution. So people, members of the public or astronomers, can actually talk to their councils about light trespass. It's not just about light in the sky, it's light being shone into your bedroom, into your garden, where you don't want it. Light trespass is light pollution. So making it on a par with things like noise pollution. Uh, absolutely. It's, yeah, absolutely. Because not everyone enjoys that kind of intrusion, having light shone into your bedroom, you're trying to get to sleep at night. But in terms of astronomers, we've, we had a, a golden opportunity in May 2003 where the, the current government's SciTech committee contacted, I think, pretty much every astronomical society in the country and asked if they'd like to submit a report on light pollution. And being the active society we are, we weren't going to let this pass us. So we, we actually prepared a 24-page report on light pollution. Uh, we, we drew on many, many different resources, our own thoughts and feelings. We had a petition in there, we took our own pictures, and uh, we submitted it. And I was very fortunate to go down to an open meeting at the Commons, actually, in London. And the site committee was there, the Astronomer Royal was there, the Astronomer Royal of Scotland. They all said their piece about light pollution. It's been a very on, long, ongoing process, but I think it's, it's resulted in this initial legislation against light pollution. It's very well received, to be honest, and I think quite a lot of people are sympathetic. It's just that it's not recognised as a major, major issue. So I'd like to say thank you very much for joining us here on the Jodcast and good luck with your future observing. I think it started to rain. It started to rain now, so I won't be doing it tonight, but no. <laughs> maybe another time. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Megan. And you can hear the full 25-minute interview by going to the Jodcast website at www.jodcast.net and downloading it from there. Now, a slight change to Ask an Astronomer this month, and I'll let Tim O'Brien explain. OK, welcome to the July edition of Ask an Astronomer. And you may, if you're listening carefully, detect the lack of an Antipodean twang to my accent. And that's because I am, in fact, not Nick Rattenbury introducing things as normal. Nick's disappeared. He's escaped from Jodrell. It's a parts unknown. Uh, and it's uh, I'm going to have to look after it. Tim O'Brien here, as usual. And this time, I'm going to actually make a change by asking a question of my erstwhile colleague, Ian Morrison, who's uh, standing in for Nick. Yes, hi. Good afternoon. OK, Ian. Um, right, question for you. The Star of Bethlehem. It's a well-known thing. It's a very seasonal topic, of course, this being the the middle of summer, Absolutely, but any, yes. anyway, we're going to ask it anyway. Um, Star of Bethlehem, this sort of uh, thing that the three wise men were supposed to have followed to lead them on their way to the uh, to the stable uh, where Jesus was born. The question we've been asked is, is there any astronomical object or event that might actually explain this, this the sort of appearance of the, of the Star of Bethlehem? Well, it's a very good question and not a particularly easy one to answer. Yes, that everybody believes it must have been some astronomical event. The question is, what could it have been? So the first question we actually have to ask ourselves is, is when was Jesus born? And it's not obviously zero BC, as far as we know. In fact, for quite a while it was thought, maybe some people still think, it would have been about five, maybe even six BC. But we now believe a monk made a transcription error 
in the Middle Ages because things were passed on just by copying things out. And it could well have been that Jesus was born in 1 or possibly 2 BC. Mm. Now, of course, that determines the time when we need to look to see what was in the sky. Mm. Now, as far as we know, there were no novae or supernovae. These are stars that appear very, very brightly in the sky for a short time. Mm. And that would be an ideal sort of candidate. Mm. Mm. Um, there was one, in fact, was it 1977? No, there was uh, one of the famous ones that was very bright was, yeah. was Nova uh, Cygnus yes. in, in 1975. Oh, so that, that really changed the appearance of the constellation of Cygnus then. Absolutely, it was so bright. But they're, you know, they're, they're rather unusual. And there's certainly, I don't think you're saying there's no records. There are no records whatsoever. Yeah. Now, another thing could be a very bright comet. But again, there's nothing in any of the historical astronomical records to say there was a bright comet at the time. And certainly Halley's Comet, which is one that comes around about every 85 years, that wasn't in the sky either. Now, there was, however, one particular set of circumstances that I think had great, let's say, astrological significance. Remember that the, the wise men were interested in, in the motions of the planets and mm -hmm. when they appeared together and where they were in the sky. They're not quite the same as modern-day astronomers like Tim and I. Now, there's a constellation, Leo, Leo the Lion, mm -hmm. which in fact was linked to the house of David, the lineage that Jesus belonged to. Right. That has as its brightest star, Regulus. And in the Latin, that's Rex, which is king. Mm -hmm. So that's the king star, you might mm -hmm. say. Now, if we come back to our solar system, we have Jupiter, Jove, the king planet in mm -hmm. some sense. Now, at around the right time, about 2 BC to 1 BC, there was a very, very rare circumstance. What happened was that Jupiter came very close to Regulus three times over the course of a relatively short period. Very, very close, apparently, apparently in the sky. In the sky. Yes, because, of course, Jupiter is a planet quite nearby. Mm. Uh, Regulus is a star a very long way away. Mm. But they would appear very close. We mm. call that a conjunction. Mm -hmm. And so this was a triple conjunction. And to be a very close conjunction with a bright star is really quite interesting. Sure. And Regulus, it would happen very, very rarely indeed. What happened was that as Jupiter moved across the heavens, basically from west to east, it first passed very close indeed to Regulus. In fact, you'd need to look fairly carefully to see that there were two different objects together. Right. It then carried on for a while, but then turned round in the sky and went westwards, not quite so close, and passed just north of Regulus, and finally turned round again, continued mm -hmm. its eastward path, mm. passing again. Now, that wiggle in the sky is actually due to the Earth mm. sort of running around on the inside track. Mm. It's due to the motion of the Earth. So that very rare event may well have triggered the wise men to make the passage to Bethlehem to see the young king out of the lineage of David. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an, that's an interesting theory. Um, now, I think... Uh, I mean, funny enough, it reminded me, while you were talking there, you were talking about Regulus, it reminded me of a slight embarrassment that occurred to us a few years ago when uh, we had a team, George Bank had a team on um, on University Challenge, if you've seen that programme. They have a, this series called The Professionals, where they get uh, groups of, uh, you know, in our case, we were the astronomers, and we were up against the Royal Society of Literature, and one of the questions uh, actually involved, the answer to which was supposed to be Regulus, which was this bright star in Leo, and I think I remember sitting there when this question was asked and thinking, the only the only star I know in Leo is Regulus, but the other it was a multi-part question. The other part of the question was that this this answer had to be something to do with the smelting process. 
And I was thinking, Regulus? No, no, never heard of anything to do with Regulus. Me, so, me so, I didn't, so I didn't yeah. answer. And of course, turns out the answer was Regulus. And if you do a Google search for smelting and you have a look at that, there is a product in smelting that's called Regulus. So I'm afraid that's what that brings to mind for me. But never oh, mind. Oh, well, we, we still won. won. We, we won. did beat we them won. in the end by five matters. points. That's true. So. Okay. okay. Well, I think I've got me? a question for yeah. you. Yes. Someone has uh, written in and said, um, why is it we sometimes see only part of the moon? Ah oh, right, yeah, that's that's right. So this is a this is a question um, that basically is about the phases of the moon, isn't it? Yes. Um, so I think I think the the point here is that when you look up at the moon, you see the moon in the sky. That when we when I discuss these things with people, you know, you, sometimes you find that people don't even realise that you can see the moon during the day. Sometimes. No, absolutely. You know, there's this conception that the moon is only up at night. Of yes. course, it can be visible at any time of day or and night. In fact, if you do see it sort of in the early evening, uh, you can actually make out quite a bit of detail. Yeah, when it's not quite so bright, you can right. see the Maria quite well. Right. It's worth right. At. So it's not, you know. So that's one point to make. First yeah. of all, the other point is that when you when you do look at the moon, you'll notice sometimes you see a a crescent, sometimes you see a sort of half moon shape, sometimes you see the full moon, and sometimes you can hardly see the moon at all. Um, something called the new moon, and uh, and I think one of the important thing first of all is to make sure that you that you don't make the confusion between uh, these so-called phases of the moon and eclipses. Um, because another sort of common misconception is that the change in shape is because the the part of the moon that we see is the part that's illuminated by the sun, and and, and one way of, of wrongly imagining this is that perhaps it's the Earth's shadow that's cast on the moon, yes. and that's what causes part of the moon to appear dark and the other part to appear light. Now it's nothing to do with that. It's uh, it's actually because the moon is a is a is a sort of spherical object, roughly spherical object in orbit about about the Earth. And if you imagine as the moon moves around the Earth sort of once every 28 days or so, roughly, there are times when the moon might be, say, more or less on the opposite side of the sky to the sun. So if the sun was setting, for example, the moon yeah. might be just rising. And in that case, if you imagine the light from the sun sort of heading past the Earth uh, and illuminating the moon, then we'll get to see pretty much the whole of the of, of the side of the moon that's facing towards us. So that's the full moon. So that's, that appears quite circular. And because quite often that's when... You know, as I say, if you if you had, you can imagine the sun setting and the moon low down, this big full moon. You see this sort of giant full moon hanging above the horizon, absolutely gorgeous. And and in fact, it does give the impression it's much larger than it is it when it's really higher in the is. sky, doesn't it? That the moon is actually not that big in angular size. Um, later this month, it comes very close to the Pleiades cluster, and uh, in fact, you'll see that the Pleiades cluster is about three times larger, even mm -hmm. though that to us looks quite small. Uh, so it's not that big. Um, the reason it looks so large near the horizon is perhaps due to a, um, it's a sort of psychological mm. optical, optical effect, illusion, yeah. optical illusion. Um, when we look up at the sky, we don't see it as a hemisphere above it, above us. It's, it appears very flattened. That the horizon seems much further away to us in perception than directly overhead. Mm -hmm. So if we see the moon on the horizon, our brain thinks it must be further away, mm. and actually puts a sort of a scale factor in to compensate mm. and that mm. makes it look bigger. Mm. Mm. So that's a full moon um, and the opposite extreme would be if the moon was quite close to the sun on the sky. Um, now if the moon was exactly in the same direction as the sun then obviously it would block the light from the sun and we'd have a total solar eclipse like the one we went to visit or went to see when we went to Turkey. In it's wonderful, was it March, March of 29th I think, yeah, beautiful yeah, eclipse. Yeah. So, in fact, there isn't. If you think about the moon going round and round the Earth every month, if the moon orbited the Earth in the same plane as the Earth orbits the Sun, 
then in fact you get a total solar eclipse every month. Now they they don't happen that often, uh, and that's because the uh, the moon's orbit is inclined at an angle to the to the so-called plane of the ecliptic, which is the plane of the of the Earth's orbit around the sun. So in fact, only every so often will it actually line up with the sun. So it usually misses it. However, you can get a direction where the moon is relatively in the same direction, roughly the same direction. And if you can imagine what happens then, the light from the sun sort of shining on the far side of the moon from how we see it. Uh, and so the side that we can see is actually not illuminated and so appears relatively dark. Um, the way in which you can still see some details uh, on the, the unilluminated bit of the moon is by something called earth shine isn't it? that's right the the clouds particularly if it's quite cloudy across the earth that reflects light back and you can actually see the maria and some of the details on the on the lunar surface and in fact there are some very nice photographs during totality actually showing the structure of the surface of the moon mm. purely by earth shine mm. so it's quite tempting isn't it to call I, I referred to the far side of the moon then didn't i you did it's quite tempting to use this phrase the dark side of the moon yes well that's another misconception that the back of the moon is always dark and the answer is it isn't it will be totally dark when we have full moon right. because that means the moon is beyond the earth away from the sun so the dark the back side is dark but of course a new moon then we don't see the surface illuminated, but the whole of the back will be. Right. So, in fact, it will show phases too, if right. you could look at it from yeah, somewhere yeah. far away. So I've composed my letter to Roger Waters and David Gilmore, and I shall be sending it later. I hope you'll co-sign that letter with Absolutely. me. Absolutely. OK, um, so we've seen two extremes. We've talked about new moon, we've talked about full moon. And then sort of halfway in between, when the moon is sort of at right angles to the direction to the sun, and if you can imagine that then one half of the moon, as we view it, would be illuminated by the sun. And that's this sort of, this this half moon, or in fact it's... First quarter it's yeah, called, yes. Yeah, so it's a sort of quarter of the way through the cycle of phases, although so it's a bit confusing in a way, because you'd like to call it half moon, really, but the official title is first and last quarter for these for these phases. If you're interested in finding out a bit more about that, and particularly, I think, if, you're, if you've got children and they're going through the sort of primary school at the moment and, and learning about about these sorts of concepts which I think which is on the curriculum um, then you may want to have a quick look at a website that we've got at Manchester University um, it's called the Children's University and the address is www.childrensuniversity.manchester.ac.uk um, and there's actually nice interactives that describe these concepts of the phase of the moon uh, on that website so it's def definitely worth a look I think. It is. It's very good. OK, I think that's about us finished for another month. Um, thank you, Ian, for standing in for Nick. A pleasure. I, well, we'll have to see. There'll have to be a vote on whether Ian's actually done sufficiently well to replace Nick. I think send in letters. Let, let us know whether you think we should have Ian instead <laughs> oh, of Nick. No way, no way. <laughs> I think we'll probably have Nick back and Ian can go back to his night sky this you, you month. You've got enough of me on the night sky page. So. <laughs> right, thanks very much anyway. Thanks, Tim and Ian. And that's not the last we hear of Ian Morrison, because he's now here to tell us all about what's happening in the July night sky. July's night sky. I suppose, sadly for astronomers, the nights don't get very dark until quite late, and in the northern part of the country, they never get totally dark at all. We have to wait a little bit till late August, September, perhaps, for better nights for observing. However, if one does stay up, one does have a very nice skyscape, fairly high in the south. We have three bright stars, Deneb in the constellation of Cygnus, Vega in the constellation of Lyra, and Altair 
in the constellation Aquila, making up what is called the Summer Triangle. Cygnus is up to the left, Lara a little bit to its lower right, and Altair below the two. They do make a very beautiful sight. The Milky Way runs along the axis of Cygnus the Swan. If with binoculars you start off at Altair, that's the lowest of these bright stars in Aquila, and follow a line between Altair and Lyra and the bright star Vega within it, you may, in that dark patch of sky, see a rather nice asterism. It's called Brocky's Cluster, but in fact is also called the Coat Hanger because it looks a little bit like an upside-down coat hanger. It's a very nice thing to see, ideal with binoculars. If you then carry on up to Vega, the brightest star, which is getting almost overhead in the latter part of July, you'll see just to the upper left what appears to be a reasonably bright star. Look at that with binoculars, and you might well see it is in fact a double star, Epsilon Lari. In fact, it's called the double-double, because if you use a telescope under good seeing conditions, you can actually see that each of those two stars is itself a double star. But binoculars should be able to show you the fact that what appears to be one star with our eye is in fact two. So that's a very nice region of the sky. Towards the, the west of Lyra is the constellation of Hercules. The brightest stars make up what is called the keystone. And if you follow up the right-hand side of that keystone, again with binoculars, you might see a fuzzy glow. That's called M13. It's a globular cluster, a spherical collection of several millions of stars formed at the time our galaxy is formed. So they're very old. It's perhaps the most beautiful of these so-called globular clusters that we can see in the northern sky. So there are the stars. What about the planets? Well, we have a chance in the very first week of July to actually see four planets simultaneously. If you look over to the west, and you need a very good low horizon just after sunset, you have a chance to see, first of all, Mercury low above the horizon. Above that, and again to the left, is Saturn. And above that, to the left, is the planet Mars. So these three planets are visible in the early weeks, early week or so of July, but in fact, they'll be sinking into the twilight fairly soon, and you haven't got much chance of seeing them in the latter part of July. But if you then move round towards the south, you'll have a chance to see the brightest object in the sky, apart from the moon if it's up, which is the planet Jupiter. If you have a reasonable pair of binoculars, then looking at Jupiter, you should be able to see it has some satellites. There are four bright satellites, so-called the Galilean satellites, because they were discovered by Galileo Galilei with his small telescope. But with a good pair of binoculars and a steady hand, you can make them out. You may not see four, because as they weave their way around Jupiter, sometimes some can be in front or behind, but you usually see at least one or two. Just a final point, if you're up very early in the morning, perhaps 2 o'clock on July the 20th, 
there'll be a very nice sight as the moon, a thin crescent waning moon, passes quite close to that lovely cluster of stars called the Pleiades in Taurus. In fact, had we lived in North America, we'd actually see the moon occult, which means come in front of some of those stars. But we will see them close together in the sky. So I think there are some things it's worth staying up for to look at during July. And of course, as we go through the year, we'll get more evening time and a chance to see more stars too. Thanks, Ian. And he'll, of course, be back next month to give us the August night sky. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Jodcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please continue to send any comments or feedback to us via the webpage at www.jodcast.net. If you want to have another view of what's in the night sky, then you can either visit a local planetarium or check out the Think Tank Planetarium podcast, which you can download from www.thinktank.ac, and that's my other podcast. So now it just remains me to thank Ian Morrison, Tim O'Brien, Megan Argo, and Nick Rattenbury, and also to Mark Brzee of Darker Projects Productions for giving us the opening and closing. No copyright is intended to be infringed, uh, relating to the outer limits at all. And so that's all from me, so until next month's issue, goodbye. The universe is a large place. Your mind can stray far from home. We now return control to you until the next time when your mind wanders too close to the Jodcast. <laughs>